chapter 19, verses 28 to 44. That's Luke 19, 28 to 44. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, and now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's just bow our heads as we come to God's word this morning. Holy Father, we worship you, we love you, we praise you, we draw near to you with humble hearts this morning. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would speak the truth of your word deep into our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Great to be with you. If you do have a Bible, please grab it and turn to Luke 19 as we look at this together. And this morning, I want to look at, a, at this passage where I believe there's something rather difficult to hear that God wants to say to us. And I believe God wants us to look this morning at that dreadful moment where the Lord Jesus wept over Jerusalem and pronounced judgment over them because they did not know the day of their visitation. They did not know the time of their visitation. What a terrible thing to have the Saviour right there in your midst, to have that opportunity for salvation right there in front of you and to miss it completely. And now we started our Bible reading with the words, and when he had said these things. And so I think it's important for us to understand what Jesus had said beforehand because there's a, a warning that's going to make sense of everything that unfolds on that triumphant entry into Jerusalem. 
And we just go back a little bit. We're going to go back to verse 11 in verse 19. Jesus tells a parable about 10 miners. These are kind of like, like a pound or, you know, like a talent, you know, a, a sum of money. And in this parable, this, this rich nobleman, he went off to a far country and he had given each of his 10 servants a miner or a pound, whatever you want to call it. He'd given them this, this coin. And he'd given them this sum of money to invest, which uh, whilst he was away, he would then collect it on his return. Now, the citizens in that country also hated him and didn't want him to reign over them. That's another thing we see in this parable, that the citizens, where he was, they hated him and they didn't want him to reign over them. And when the nobleman returns, he is met by two of his servants who've been working hard diligently and they've multiplied the sum of money that they were given. One of them had ten, and he said, I've made ten miners more. Another had, had, had made five. And the, the master commended their faithfulness. And he was very pleased with what they'd done. But then we see another comes forward and he, and he admits that he just kept the coin in a handkerchief. And he offered the most pathetic of excuses. He knew that his master would have wanted him to do something with it and and to reap a profit, and he was afraid. And understandably, his master's really angry with him and condemns him for his laziness and his cowardice. And he also pronounced judgment on all the citizens who hated him and didn't want him to rule over them. And he says that they will be brought out and slaughtered in front of him. And what we see from this parable is that there are essentially three types of people. There are people who are faithful and obedient to Christ. There will be people who hate him and want absolutely nothing to do with him. And there will be some who profess Christianity. There will be some who, who say all the right things. They look like they're Christians, but when they're tested on the day of judgment, they'll be found wanting. And Jesus has warned in this parable about a coming judgment... And these were the things that he was speaking about and had spoken about at that time going up to the time where he went up to Jerusalem. And so keep that in mind as we look at the events, as we see these events unfold on that Palm Sunday because things aren't what they might seem. And firstly, before we look at the triumphal entry, a couple of things worth bearing in mind. Firstly, this triumphal entry of Jesus was very significant, firstly, because he was deliberately provoking a demonstration. This was to get everyone responding, to get this kind of enthusiasm of the masses that would antagonize the hostile religious leaders in Jerusalem. And and they would then want to crucify Jesus. They already wanted to crucify him, but this would bring it forward into God's perfect timeline. The ultimate Passover lamb was about to be slain. Secondly, we also see that Jesus was also fulfilling the messianic prophecy in Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9, which says, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is going to ride up to Jerusalem, but he's not the kind of Messiah that they're hoping for. Like many today, what they were looking for was a political, earthly leader. And I think that is so much the case today, even in the church, how we see the church becoming so political in this this hour. There's so much political virtue signaling in the church right now. We've got leaders who I think very often are more like politicians than they're like prophets. 
We've got leaders in the church who are more concerned with virtual, virtual signaling than gospel preaching. And the mainstream church is, has kind of been drawn away by this deception that's happening in the world and distracting the church from her main calling and mission. The Jews at that time, they wanted a political leader rather than a savior. That was what they wanted. They wanted a king. They were no different to, to the Israelites when they said to Samuel, we want a king to be like all the nations. They just wanted a political leader. And still to this day, Israel is waiting for that earthly political leader who, by the way, will one day appear, but in the form of the Antichrist. There is this longing for something other than God. So the first thing we see as we look at this together, as the people worshipped, they were, they were, they were worshipping, they were shouting, they were singing, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. There was great excitement, there was great noise, there was a carnival atmosphere, it was a great event, a real feel-good event, I'm sure many people there would have had a real fuzzy, warm, fuzzy feeling inside them afterwards. Their worship, though, was proclaiming the restoration of the King of David rather than the kingdom of God. They, they were celebrating a deliverance, they thought, from the, from the yoke of Rome rather than the yoke of sin and death. And they were hoping for the reestablishment of Israel as a great and independent nation again rather than salvation and eternal life. In many ways, this was not true, genuine worship. Whilst they recognized his messiahship, they wanted Jesus on their terms. They wanted Jesus to serve them, and they were not willing to surrender their lives to him as Lord and Savior. Those same people who were shouting all these things, only a few days later would be shouting, crucify him. There were some people in the crowd who were faithful to Christ, perhaps. There would have been some people there who, who did worship the Lord and follow him. But on the whole, there were people who knew who Jesus was, but they didn't know why he had come. They could say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, but they couldn't say, who brings salvation and the forgiveness of sins. For many of them, they did not know the time of their visitation. And likewise today, there is a a form of Christianity in churches today that has more to do with having a better life than the clear biblical call to repentance and faith. We see today many false teachers and false gospels. And what all of these false teachers and false gospels have in common is it's very man-centered. It's very much focused on you and, and what God can do for you. And you know, if the object of the message is you and not Christ, ultimately, it's very likely a false gospel that you're hearing. Since the object of all faith, worship, and salvation is Christ and him alone. These people were worshipping Jesus, but ultimately there was another agenda here. It was very much on their terms for many of them there. They worshipped him on that Palm Sunday, and yet only a few days later we'd see them reject him. What a terrible thing that is. But you know, I've seen as a minister and in my own life as well, I've seen so many friends and people I've known and people in congregations who they've worshipped God, they've held their hand up and they've praised God in church and then something difficult happened in their life. Maybe they lost their job, maybe their relationship broke down, maybe um, they came and had some ill health or some bad thing happened to them and they got angry with God and they turned against God. 
I've seen it happen time and time again. The problem was that they never really truly worshipped God. Anyone can sing praises to God. Anyone can, can, can declare an allegiance to God and to Christ. But not everyone can pick up their cross daily and follow after Christ. And we also see the Pharisees in the, in the crowd telling, telling the crowd, the Pharisees telling Christ to tell the crowd to stop praising him. They hated him and they wanted to shut down any expression of worship. And Jesus said to them, if these became silent, the stones would cry out. Creation itself will testify to the glory of God and recognize the time of visitation. Since the most religious men in Israel had hearts that were harder than stone, one day the stones of the temple would also testify judgment against them as they lay rubble on the ground, as we see the Lord Jesus later on declaring that judgment against them. It's a very deeply disturbing reality that some of the most religious people like the Pharisees, can have the coldest and hardest hearts because mere religious observance without the person of Christ only results in the same kind of hatred ultimately and coldness of heart that had Christ crucified. We also see the tenderness of Christ. Later on in verse 41, in stark contrast to the hardness of heart of the Pharisees, we see the tenderness of Christ's heart as he wept over Jerusalem. And this is such a, such a tragic moment. Jesus looking back at Jerusalem that one last time. And it broke his heart. And in that moment we see how God feels about sin and rebellion. It breaks his heart. Jesus looked over Jerusalem and he knew all about their hearts and all about their character. He knew what was behind all of that bluster and all that worship. He knew that there was pride, there was stubbornness, there was self-righteousness. And he knew everything that was going to happen to him. His betrayal, the sham trial that he was going to have to stand. And being handed over to the Romans to be beaten and crucified whilst his closest disciples would betray him and abandon him. And yet despite knowing all that... I know if that was me and I knew all that, I would, I would not have that same amount of compassion that Jesus did. I would have been so angry. And yet Jesus looked at that city and he wept over it. He cried. I also believe that's how God looks over our nation and world right now. He weeps over it. That which so deeply distresses us and disturbs us, how much more does it distress God who created all of it? God cares so deeply for all of humanity, more than we can ever imagine. And his compassion extends to all. The Bible says that God is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And that is why we evangelize. That's why we plant churches. Because we share that same compassion and concern that Jesus had for the lost. That's why the Apostle Paul says, for the love of Christ compels us. But God doesn't want anyone to perish, and so neither should we. I wonder, have you ever wept over someone who, who died and didn't know the Lord? You know, you know someone died, and unless they called on the Lord in their dying moments, you think, well, I, I don't think that person's with the Lord. Have you ever wept over someone? I know I have. What a sickening feeling it is. Have you ever felt so utterly sick, just stomach, knowing that someone you love 
in their dying moments could be eternally lost. I know I have as well. I'm praying desperately for that person to come to faith. I remember my grandfather on his deathbed praying desperately and crying out to God that he would believe in his dying moments. Have you ever felt the intense grief of someone you know who doesn't know the Lord? And that drives you to prayer. But God cares and he puts that compassion in us to drive us to our knees to pray. To quote the the Bishop J.C. Ryle, he says, We know but little of true Christianity if we do not feel a deep concern about the souls of unconverted people. A lazy indifference about the spiritual state of others may doubtless save us much trouble. To care nothing whether our neighbours are going to heaven or hell is no doubt the way of the world. The sight of the Lord Jesus weeping over that city should also drive you and I to our knees, to pray for the lost. This challenges me and has convicted me this week. I need to spend more time on my knees. I need to weep more over the lost because I see the Lord Jesus doing it, so I need to. We need the Holy Spirit to soften our hearts. It is God who softens our hearts and and makes us weep over the lost and to intercede and to come to to God and pray that that person will come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, to have the heart of Christ. May we pray, O Lord, give me the heart of Christ and not of the Pharisees. Take away my heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh that I would weep over the lost. And lastly, we see as the Lord Jesus weeps over Jerusalem that he pronounces judgment over them. Verse 42, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes they're hidden from your eyes notice that Jesus speaks uh, this judgment over Israel that because she did not know the time of her visitation she did not know the day of her visitation there's a spiritual ignorance that is sinful and it brought Israel under God's judgment Her rulers were willfully ignorant and would not look at the clear evidence and the prophetic signs of the times. And so judgment was coming and she was left without any excuse. You know, the fact that not knowing the truth or refusing to to know it it amounts to the same thing. That ignorance is not innocence. A lost person cannot plead on the day of judgment and say, well, I didn't hear or understand the gospel. And and that would somehow save them because they didn't know or understand it. It doesn't work like that. We think about the world around us. If you break a law accidentally and you try pleading your innocence, you're still going to have to pay. You can't get around the fact you've broken the law and that there are consequences. I remember being when I was in Essex going to a particular uh, church planting event one of our churches had planted out and and we went along to this worship event and I I parked somewhere and I asked one of my colleagues is it all right for me to park here and he said yeah it should be all right you know famous last words yeah it should be all right turned out I was parked in the wrong place and and I received a, a 250 pound penalty charge notice that's not a nice surprise in the post is it that's not the sort of thing you want to open and go oh great thanks and I thought, that was, I thought that was really unfair. So I, I got in touch with the council, and I, you know, I was being a bit self-righteous. I was like, I don't see why I should pay this. You know, I didn't know I was parked in the wrong place. And they said, well, you've got to pay it. It's not our fault you didn't know where to park. And the reality is, the rules are still the rules, whether you like it or not, whether you agree with it or not, doesn't change the rules. 
And I think if you stopped anyone in the street and asked them, they'd say, well, yeah, if you parked in the wrong place, you have to pay the fine, either that or, or go for a day out in court. There are consequences. So what makes us think then that that would not apply with regards to breaking God's laws? What makes us think that God should just let us off because we lived our lives in blind ignorance to the truth? And I've lost count of the number of times people have asked me when I've done Alpha courses and Christianity courses, people have often asked the question, yes, but what about some tribe of people living out in some remote island in the Pacific who haven't heard the gospel? Would God judge them? Would he, would he send them to hell? And they, they, they kind of, it's really a question, I think, that's trying to catch you out a bit. But what about a group of people who've never heard the gospel? Well, are they, are they going to be exempt from punishment? And the answer is no. Are they, are they innocent? No. Are they, going to, are they going to face judgment? Yes. Because ignorance is not innocence. And that, that's why missionaries go out to all these places. You know, why do you think missionaries train up and take their families and give up everything? I know missionaries who've literally given up everything to go to some far-flung place on the other side of the world. They're not just going over there to teach people how to read. They want people to hear the gospel. They want people to be saved. Listen, it doesn't matter if you live in a remote island in the middle of the Pacific or if you live in the metropolis. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all, we're all under condemnation. Ignorance is not innocence. And so lastly, we also see that, that, that God had given Israel that special opportunity of invitation. The Son of God had came to his own. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. He called them to himself. They had a special season of mercy and privilege. And God sometimes does that. And God had given Israel this special opportunity, this special moment. They had seen the Lord Jesus perform these amazing miracles they had heard the mo the greatest teaching that anyone's ever ever taught and they were there in the days of the clearest call to repentance and faith that city any city had ever heard or received and they could not have heard that call to repentance any clearer than they than they did and they chose to ignore it because the hearts were their hearts were hardened and ultimately they had no excuse there have been many occasions where people have come into a church like this. They've heard a clear gospel message. Whether they've been to a, into a church or a worship gathering or the man in the street that I bumped into yesterday preaching the gospel in Farnborough with a cross, preaching the gospel. They've heard it, they've rejected it, and they've wanted nothing to do with it. And one day they'll have to face the judgment of Christ because they did not know the time of their visitation and they foolishly rejected the forgiveness and salvation that was being offered to them. And so as I, as I close, I've noticed in many years that the church has gone soft on the gospel in many ways. We've become afraid of offending people. But the problem is, the problem with that is we're giving people a false premise because Christ wept over Jerusalem because they rejected him and did not know the time of their visitation. We will upset people and offend people when we share the gospel with them, but we do it out of love. We're saying, this might upset you now, but if it brings you to Christ and you're saved, then you're not lost for eternity. How much worse would it be to be lost for eternity because you did not get to be saved whilst you're on earth? And God will be glorified even when we share the full gospel and people reject it since they had a clear opportunity to put their faith in Jesus Christ, to believe that he died on the cross in their place 
for their sin and rebellion and to receive the forgiveness that is offered to them. Let us close in prayer. Father, we, we come to you with, 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 our, with our hearts very much chastened by all of us, our need to share the gospel more, myself included. And Father, we pray, Lord, that you put in our hearts that urgency to share the good news of Jesus Christ this Easter with those around us. We pray, Heavenly Father, if, if we're here this morning and we haven't fully surrendered to you, that in this moment we would come to you and say, Lord, I want to follow you completely. I want you to be Lord and Savior of my life. And I'm sorry, Lord, for the times where I've rejected you in my life. But Father, we pray that you give all of us the heart of Christ who wept over Jerusalem. Would we have hearts that are broken for those who are lost? And would you give us that heart of flesh, the heart of Christ, that we long to see people come to know you. Give us a heart for Farnborough, we pray, we pray Lord, this, this Easter time. As we look at Farnborough and we see a place full of so many lost souls, we pray, Father, that many would come to know you, to come through the doors of this church this Easter and come to know you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.